The story goes that there was a lecturer giving a, a, a time management seminar to a group. And to begin the seminar, he, he took out from underneath his table a big wide mouth glass jar. And so he set that beside the table and then he picked up another uh, jar and it was full of big rocks. And so he asked the audience, how many of these big rocks do you think we can get into this glass container? And people had certain responses. And so he said, "Okay, let's see. So they put the big rocks into the glass container. And whether it was seven or eight or nine at the end, he said, do you think we can get any more rocks into the container? The audience said, no, I don't think you can get any more in. And then he reached underneath and he grabbed a pail of gravel or small rocks. And so he poured the gravel into the jar, and of course it went in and around and under the big rocks, and he filled it up to the top and sort of patted it down, and he said, do you think we can get anything else into the jar? And the people were not quite as certain with their answer, and so he again picks up another pail, and it has sand in it. And so he puts the sand and sifts it down, and any possible way we can get anything left Put any, anything in the jar. And so he picks up his final piece. It's a pail full of water and he pours the water in until it's overflowing. And then he asked the folks that were at, attending the lecture, what's the, the point of this illustration? And one eager student jumps forward and says, if, if you work hard, you can always fit more into your schedule. And, of course, the lecturer says, no, that's not the point. The point is, if you don't get the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. And, of course, you know that principle. If you don't, if you don't get the big, important things in first, what happens is your life fills up with gravel and sand and water. And then when, it go, when you go to try to fit the big things in, somehow you just don't have the emotional capacity for it. Maybe you don't have the time for it. Maybe you don't have the resources for it. So you, you got to figure out in your life what's the most important things. And you got to make sure you take those big, important rocks and you put them in your life for the very first at the very first, because otherwise your life will get full and you'll never have Room for those things. The, the urgent always seems to crowd out the important. You always have your to-do list and you're checking things off. But when you think about the bigger rocks, they never seem to, to be urgent. And so they're often unaddressed. Paul seems to have this principle in mind in this particular text when it comes to theology. He said there are there is something of first importance. There are some things that are like the big theological doctrinal rocks. And we've got to make sure we put those in the jar first, that we have all of those nailed down, that we understand those things before we start filling our lives with other bits of of important but not as important information. And so he says this, this these are the things of first importance. So let's just look at that. Verse three, chapter 15, verse three, for I delivered to you. This is Paul delivering to the church at Corinth, which is in Greece. I delivered to you as of first importance. And this is what I've also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day 
in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. Those are the things of first importance. And this fall I'm going to begin a new series on the importance and the mission and the workings of a church. I think that will help sort of set the table for how we see God using the church and how we fit into the church and how we structure ourselves as a church. But before I got to that, I thought it would be important to to make sure we have the big rocks in first, that we've got the, the things of first importance, that we have real clarity and agreement on those things. And so the big rock, obviously, is the gospel. And I want to talk about the gospel in three ways this morning. First, I want to just say that it's it's news And secondly, I want to just look briefly at what is the news. And then finally, how does the news change us? First, the gospel is news. And then we want to say, well, what is that news? And then finally, we want to just briefly look at how that news changes us. First, it's news. Look at chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. I I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached I'm declaring, I'm telling you that I received. You're you're taking your stand in this. You're being saved by this. You hold fast to this word that I, I preached to you. And the word gospel, most of you probably know this in in the Greek, is euangelion. It's where you get the word evangelist. And so Paul, this is one of his favorite words in the New Testament. The, the, this word euangelion, the gospel, is used 74 times, and Paul uses it 60 of those 74. So this is a favorite word for Paul. And so if you're an evangelist, what you're do- doing is you're delivering good news. That's what the word means. The mean, it means good news. So the gospel is news. That's the most important thing to our, that we begin with. It's, it's news and it's not advice. Advice is counsel that you would receive in order to help you get to help something happen. Or to get something accomplished. But news is a report of something that has been accomplished. Advice is something that you get that might help you get something accomplished. Hey, I need some advice to get from this point to that point. And that's certainly fine. But that's not what this is. This is a a declaration. This is an announcement of something that has happened for you. And it's a big difference between advice and news in this case. When you're talking to an unbelieving neighbor or a family member on your summer vacation, they they might offer you all kinds of pieces of advice or things that they sort of put together from their life or their worldview. And, hey, this is how I operate personally. Here's how I operate with my family. Here's how I operate with God. And maybe they're delivering some advice. But when you're speaking back to that person, you're not giving advice. You're delivering information. You're delivering news. You're telling them of a fact that actually happened in history. You're just reporting back something that has happened. The gospel as news is what separates religion from Christianity. Religion, essentially all world religions, is some form of advice on how you get to God. 
some person lived or some person wrote some things. And if you follow this sevenfold path or you agree to these things or you go on these this many pilgrimages or if you do certain things to yourself or to, for other people, then that gets you to God. So they're delivering some piece of advice. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is news about how God has come to you. Religion is about how you to get to God, but Christianity is this great news that God is actually coming for you. And so when you think about the passage in Luke chapter 2, the famous uh, passage that you all know from Christmas time, the angels are coming together and they're going to make this announcement, you remember, to the shepherds who are out in the fields, and they say to the shepherds, don't be afraid, I bring you what? Good news. They don't blow the trumpets and say, we're here to give you some great advice. No, it's they're here to announce something that Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, he has come and he's come for sinners just like you. It's an announcement. They're saying something uh, about what has happened God has come for his people. Another way maybe to think about the difference between religion and Christianity is that religion puts burdens on. And religion and Christianity takes burdens off. Religion's. Religion puts burdens on. Here's here's some things you have to do. And maybe they're really helpful and good things. But it's putting something on. You have to do something. And Christianity comes to say, no, I'm taking something off. I'm taking chains off. I'm not putting them on. In 1721, Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, his brother's name is John. They began what we now know as the Methodist Church. In 1721... Charles was a rising sophomore in college. So imagine, you, you're, some of you are rising sophomores here in college. And he's a rising sophomore in college, and he had, his first year was pretty uh, non-eventful, but in his second year, he decided with a group of, uh, of his friends, which they, they, teamed, they, they named themselves the Holy Club. Imagine that. We're part of the Holy Club. And we made up this little holy club. And so our freshman year, we just didn't take religion seriously. But this year, we're going to have Bible study and we're going to have prayer and fasting and charitable works. And we're going to be called the holy club. And so his sophomore year, he was serious about his religion. And they committed to sort of disciple each other and to hold one another accountable. And after college Charles and his brother John set sail for America, where they were missionaries to some folks who lived in Georgia. But on that trip, they began to feel uneasy about their own salvation. And so they returned back to England, and Charles, on his return in London, met a a guy named Peter Bowler. And Peter Bowler was leading a Bible study that Charles was attending. And they had this very remarkable conversation Bowler asked Charles one day, do you hope to be saved? Imagine asking that to a missionary. Hey, do you you hope to be saved? And Charles says, I do. And Bowler said, well, for what reason do you hope it? 
And Charles said, because I have used my best endeavors to serve God. And Charles recounts Peter shaking his head, just walking away and saying nothing else. And this this is what Charles said. I thought him very uncharitable. (laughs) Saying in my heart, what are not my endeavors sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my good endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. Not long after that conversation, Charles discovered the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ. He was at another meeting, and that meeting was going through the book of Galatians, and there was a commentary that Martin Luther had written. And Martin Luther had had this same problem. He was trying to use the things that he had done, trying to gain God's favor. And Luther, of course, made a big turn on that. And so we had the Protestant Reformation. And Charles is at a meeting and he hears this being read from Luther's commentary and where Luther says, so then do we do nothing to obtain this righteousness? That's his question. Comma. No. No, we do nothing at all. And and for Charles, when he heard you, you do nothing at all. Burdens came off. Chains fell off. And of course, you know what happened. An avalanche of hymns now came from Charles. And this kind of thing was now written by him. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. When was he fast bound in sin and nature's night? When he was in the Holy Club, when he was a missionary, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. And what does it say? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed. They see, see, Charles made a huge transition from religion that you and I might have looked like, hey, he's. He's one of the he's one of the insiders. He's got it all down and he moved into the gospel. He moved away from advice and he moved into a, a news. Something has happened. God has come for a sinner like Charles Wesley. And so, you know, you understand the gospel is news when you understand that chains are falling off when burdens are lifted. And this first rock that we're putting in today is so critically important because whether you grew up inside the church or you grew up outside the church, so often Christianity gets communicated as burdens on. Oh, I'm supposed to. And of course, once you receive the gospel, and this is the third point, there are things to be working towards. But at the very beginning, it's all chains off, all chains off. All burdens lifted. Because you, you might be here this morning as a rising sophomore. And maybe your freshman year was not all that spectacular. And you've decided with a couple of your friends, hey, this is the year we're going we're gonna to be the Holy Club. Of course, you probably wouldn't call yourself that. But you're going you're gonna to be devoted to serious Bible study and prayer and fasting and charitable works. 
Yet you could be like Charles Wesley and could still be living in chains. Because you, you didn't receive the gospel as news. You received some information from the Bible as advice. Maybe you're here as a parent, a youth leader, a small group leader, a pastor. And, and you love to communicate the Bible. But somehow when you communicate it, it's chains on. When somebody hears what you're telling them about, when they walk away, what they feel is, I feel burdened, like chains on. I don't feel the pastor. I don't feel my friend saying, hey, the news I'm announcing is freedom. It's, it's chains off. Maybe you're here and you're a longtime church member. And you don't really need to be saved from the sin of greed or jealousy or lust or lying. You need to be saved from the equally fatal sin of Self-salvation. Your good endeavors really not, never got nailed to the cross. You're holding on to your good endeavors like at the very end, I'm going to have these cards to show God. He's going to let me in. Somehow you, you never heard the gospel's news. It wasn't chains off. It was, it was chains on. Things I've got to do in order to get in. So the first point an important point before we get to what is the news is to understand that it is news it's not advice secondly what is the news very simple you see it here in these three verses that we read three four and five and you can see how uh, paul marks it off it's there's a verbal marker the word that you see that that christ died for our sins that he was buried that he was raised on the third day that he appeared to Peter and then 12 and 500 and James and Paul. So that's the gospel. That's the that's the next big rock. That's the main information that we have to understand. Christ died. It's helpful just to have a, a full stop at this point because we don't feel the force or the impact of that, because when we typically think of Jesus Christ, we think of that. That's his name. But Jesus was his name and Christ was a title. It was an Old Testament word meaning Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And everybody had been leaning forward and looking forward for the Messiah to come. And now Paul is telling us that the Messiah died. If you're in the Jewish heritage at this particular point, that doesn't. That just doesn't fit together. It's an, it's an oxymoron, two words that just don't fit together. Messiah died. Those aren't going to fit together and wouldn't have fit together. Now, all of, like I said, all of the history is leaning forward, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. It's why when John the Baptist came, you remember people came to John the Baptist and what did they ask him? Are you the are you the Messiah? I mean, we're we're leaning forward. We're looking for two or three thousand years. We're waiting for this person to come. He's going to be the Messiah. And when he comes, according to the remember the woman at the well, I know when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us everybody's looking for this particular person to arrive in human history. He's going to be the, the king in the line of David, Isaiah 9. He's going to be the ultimate kinsman redeemer, 
like Boaz, Ruth. He's going to be the lion from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. He's going to be the offspring of Abraham, who blesses every nation, Genesis 22. He's going to be the true Noah, the only righteous man in the world of corruption, who uniquely offers a way through this deluge of sin and death. He's going to be the sin, the seed of the woman, Genesis chapter 3. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. This is a chapter that you wouldn't want to have to memorize because it's got this long genealogy with these very difficult names. And a lot of times if you're doing your Bible reading, you get to verse 23 of chapter 3 and you go, okay, genealogy, okay, chapter 4. I mean, I don't because I'm a pastor, but I mean, other people do that. And you get to verse 23, and then it says, probably your Bible is heading, the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And then it starts being the son, as was supposed. As we know, he wasn't really the son of Joseph. He was the son of God. And then it goes through all these names. And I want to pick up in verse 31. The son of Malia, the son of Mena. The son of Matthiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. The son of Jesse of Obed, the son of Boaz. The son of Selah, Nashon, Amidanabad, Admin, Arni, Hezron, Perez, the son of Judah. The son of Jacob, Isaac, Isaac, and Abraham. The son of Terah, Nahor, Serug, Ru, Peleg, Ebner, Selah, Canaan. The next name. Shem, the son of Noah. Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, Mahali. Canaan, Enos, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Feel the the weight, the force, the, the freight train from the beginning of history. Everybody's looking because everyone knows God promised the seed of the woman to be this person and when he arrives everybody's waiting maybe it's going to be the next the very next birth and here we have two or three thousand years of human history later and people are still anticipating and when this messiah comes he's going to right every wrong he's going to take care of everything and now we find out that messiah died it was an arresting Kind of thing to understand. Why did he die? Answer that he died for our sin. Jesus says it about himself this way. The Messiah did not come to be served, but to serve. And how was he going to serve? He was going to give his life as a ransom for many. He was going to pay for something for other people to be set free. 
See, people were living in chains. People were living with burdens on. And somebody needed to come and pay for sins. And so he has come to do that. And Isaiah 53 anticipates this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we have we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. So Jesus pays a ransom and he sets captives free. The theological, big theological term is substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute. He took our place. The news, the good news, and listen carefully, is if you receive Christ, your every sinful thought, your every sinful deed, your every sinful word that you have committed, that you will commit, is paid for in full. There's no more payment to be made. It's freedom. It's chains off. And all of his good thoughts, all of his good words, all of his good deeds, they get transferred to you. So when God looks at you, it's as if Paul Phillips lived the life, the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That's that's the gospel. That's the news. That's the announcement. That's what's happened. It's incredible. Christ died for our sins. The Apostle Paul in chapter 15 verse 1. He says. This is what you've taken your stand in. And I wonder if you've taken your stand. On what Jesus has accomplished. Or have you taken your stand on advice. And what you're going to accomplish. There's a big difference between news and advice. When you understand it, it's a big difference of how you approach what the news is. Finally, let's just close with thinking for a few minutes about how this news changes us. Of course, the the Jesus Christ died for our sins. We could keep going with this uh, little four-part outline. How do we know that his death was effective? Anybody could say that he died for our sins. But how do you know it's effective? What's your receipt? What's your proof? Well, that he rose from the grave and he, he appeared. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to five hundred. He appeared to his brother James. And then he appeared to me, Paul, the apostle. But how does this news, now that we understand it, now that we receive it, now that we're taking our stand on it, how does it actually change us? How does the news change us? How does the grace affect our life? And, of course, so many things could be said here, but I just want to examine what Paul says in the text, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, it had a certain effect. When I received the grace, it had some kind of effect on me. And what it was is I began to work. And in a very odd statement, I worked, he's Paul saying, I worked harder than all the other people. And then I I can't quite tell, maybe in a moment of humility, I I was really by the grace of God. Everything was by the grace of God. 
I don't even want to say how hard I worked and you look back at me about how hard I worked. I want you to understand it was really the grace of God. But what Paul's trying to communicate is that when this explosive news comes into your life and you receive it, it does create an action or a reaction. It does cause you to move in a certain direction or move in a new direction. And Paul uses this kind of language all through his letters. We see here he's he's working hard in first Timothy. He says, I fought the good fight. Philippians three, I'm I'm pressing on towards a goal. I'm trying to win a prize in earlier in this same letter. First Corinthians nine, I beat my body. I make it my slave. I'm like a, a well trained athlete. I'm like an elite athlete. I go into strict training because I'm trying to reach this prize that has eternal value. Dallas Willard says this, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. So you have to have these rocks in it the right way. Because if you just heard me start this sermon with this point, here's all the effort you need to make. Then you're going to have these rocks in sort of upside down. The first thing you need to understand, it's news. It's not advice. It's something that has happened. But now that you receive it, now that you take your stand on it, now that it has exploded into your life internally, it begins working out externally. And that external working means you're fighting, you're, you're pressing forward, you're training yourself to move in a Godward direction, as Paul is talking about. And A.W. Tozer warns this, a notable heresy has come into being throughout the evangelical Christian circle. It is the widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. That's not true. Salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. They come together. One is first, salvation. And then it, it immediately begins to transform your life. As we... As the school year starts back, as you ready yourself, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a student, maybe you're just a business person. You get up around 730 or 8 and you start to go to work next week and you go, oh, buses. Oh. And it just takes you, you know, that extra 10 minutes to get somewhere. But, but these people are beginning to train their minds. They're beginning to move in a certain direction. They're holding out the hope that they're going to get to the end of this year. They're going to make it to graduation. Maybe you could ask yourself, have I, have I used God's grace as a way of escaping from personal discipline? Do you sort of look at the cross and, of course, you never say this out loud, but, yeah, I know I do that, but he's going to pay for it. So you just sort of use God's grace in a way it's not meant to be used. It's really being abused. What, what do you need to do in order to press on 
to train, to, to work hard in your spiritual life this year. James is the brother of Jesus, and he's mentioned in verse 7, and he makes this comment about folks who have been abusing the grace of God. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Answer, no, it cannot. These are the rocks of first importance. These are the things that you have to get in the jar at the very beginning to understand that that God has come and he's coming for you. And he's coming for you in your current condition. He's not coming for you and then he gets close to, to me and says, whoa, whoa, I didn't realize Paul was quite that messed up. And then hand out some advice and say, Paul, could you do these few things and then I can sort of get? No, 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 no. He's coming all the way. It's news. It's something that has happened. Secondly, you understand what the news is that he's really died for my sin. And then when that comes into your heart, it explodes into your soul, then you say, well, what, what, what now? What am I supposed to be doing? So I don't know where you might find yourself this morning. You might be in that situation where Charles Wesley was in it. You're in, you're, you're on the inside. You're doing ministry. But really the way you're doing ministry is burdens on. It's not freedom. Maybe you really have understood that, but somehow you've lost the energy to move forward. You're not really working hard. You're not pressing forward, and you need to be doing that. How can we help you in that way? After the closing song and offering, I'll be up here. Another elder will be up here. We'll be happy to pray for you, to try to come around you, to encourage you as best we can. Would you join me in the closing prayer? Heavenly Fathers, we... uh, Come and we just stand.